Welcome to the Dignity of Suffering. Have you ever been brought to your knees by the challenges of life? What if you could enter the world of the therapist, be a fly on the wall, and hear their stories and insights into life's biggest challenges? Discovering a place to learn from the experiences of others who've tried to find dignity in their suffering. Each week, Mitchell Smolkin takes a candid look at the trials and tribulations of being alive. Mitchell is a registered psychotherapist, author and speaker. He hopes to show that slowing down and becoming curious about our human experience can enrich our perspectives and plant our feet more firmly on the ground. Now, here's Mitchell. Welcome to episode 11, an interview with psychotherapist and psychoanalyst Maria Kapinska. I wanted to focus today on a subject dear to my heart, which is perhaps not that well understood. It to a large extent has to do with parenting, but more broadly speaking, affects and is involved in all of our relationships. The core of this idea is the capacity to symbolize. People often ask me what exactly this means. And for many of you who work in the field of psychology, this may be a bit rudimentary, but nonetheless, a foundational distinction that makes us human and allows us to relate in very specific and important ways with our environment. This morning, I visited an area on the west coast of Sweden, a UNESCO World Heritage Site featuring thousands of rock carvings from the Bronze Age in an area called Tanum, and they roughly go back to 1800 BCE. These are remarkable as some of the earliest representations of human life, and as I stood and stared at primitive drawings of the human experience, including what appears to be a marriage ritual, a widow on her knees grieving, and many depictions of ships, perhaps indicating the primary means of travel and trade, or as a sign of burial, I wondered about the first instincts in human beings to imagine themselves. What is equally interesting are the various interpretations that have been attempted at the meaning behind the stone carvings, interpretations which have changed dramatically over time and which, to my mind, are closely tied to shifts in our cultural viewpoints and consciousness. The reason I reference my outing today is that ultimately, each of us has a particular fantasy with which we view the world. Our ability to see something not just as an object with objective features, but to then interpret it, is what makes us uniquely human and moreover, is the part of our brain that continues to develop and grow into our late 30s. Basic patterns of representation are being laid down through our early experience of the world, and it is in the neocortex that we begin to form these associations and representations. And actually, as we get older, we have to then borrow from used material, which is why learning things like language can be more difficult as we get older, because we actually have to recycle old neurons to learn something new. So this is not just immaterial, but it's actually related to how successfully our brain grows. I have referenced this research before, but PET scans of children's brains demonstrate how loving attachment figures literally enable the brain to grow in size 
and ultimately to foster the capacity to symbolize. A basic example of early symbolization is the child who not only emotionally experiences the satiation of hunger from the parent, as in the body ceases to feel physical pangs of needing to eat, but then associates the parent symbolically with the object that will satisfy them. These are the first stages of attachment, which is partially why a child will go to their parent and feel safer than meeting someone new to whom they do not have this visceral and symbolic connection. In Canada right now, we are going through a tremendously emotional time as thousands of graves are being discovered at residential schools. I'm certain that among the many other atrocities that will be articulated as this process unfolds will be the physical and debilitating trauma of being separated from parents, community, and culture, and the direct link to this being a devastating development in the life of a child. I won't attempt to address the complexities of this profoundly nuanced development here, nor is it my story to tell, aside from my heart bleeding as a Canadian and my attempt to listen and learn. But what is crucial to understand from this is the fundamental importance of the parent, but moreover, the way that the parent gives mind to the child, and that fact being what makes parents parents, and also so important. One of the fundamental mistakes that takes place in parenting involves reactivity. For instance, the parent may have a strong emotional response to something the child says or does. Some of the most common examples of this are when the child is aggressive to the parent and or says something provocative. What parenting isn't is reacting to the aggression with aggression or taking provocative statements literally. At that point, the parent is no longer a parent, but just another human being flapping in the wind. Now, of course, there are times where one needs to react. We can't always be in a state of observation. But my point is related more substantially to the function of the parent and how imagining the child is so important to their successful emotional development. You will hear Maria and I in today's interview discuss the notion of engendering hope in the child. To imagine this on a visceral level, do a thought experiment with me. This involves putting yourself in a situation that may make you feel anxious, so if you prefer not to do that right now, please feel free to skip ahead. But if you do, close your eyes for a second if you can, or if you can't, just imagine this scenario. You are in your kitchen, in front of the stove, cooking, and all of a sudden a fire breaks out from the pan and grows so quickly you need to get away before getting burned. You turn around to leave and realize that the exit has disappeared. There is nowhere to go. And you can feel the heat of the flames and the burning feeling of the smoke. Now, all of a sudden, imagine that a door appears and you can run straight out to fresh air. Feel yourself going through the door and getting away from the threat. Now, 
the reason there is such a focus on attachment in the psychological literature is because parents being able to metabolize and make sense of the feeling of children are experienced by children as a door opening when the fire of emotion inside gets too hot. The worst thing a parent can do is shame a child for having innate emotional responses to the world or punish them for expressing feelings of loneliness and isolation. Common example of this is a child who feels isolated at school, stops paying attention, perhaps gets into trouble, and then is continually reprimanded at home for failing to live up to expectations. This is a clear example of a failure to symbolize. The parent has either lost or never had the capacity to imagine the child's pain. Maybe some of you listening will have had the experience of not remembering whole parts of your childhood or know someone who has told you that. To extend the metaphor of the kitchen fire, psychologically, when the fire and smoke are unbearable, the human being has the capacity to completely dissociate. It makes perfect sense from an evolutionary standpoint why the human being would develop the ability to banish from consciousness overwhelming confusion and pain. No wonder then that relationships are difficult in adult life or situations become so overwhelmingly provocative because these feeling states are buried very deep. Just think about crying at a commercial unexpectedly or reading a news article that all of a sudden touches a deep chord. It makes sense that the more that is buried, the more susceptible we are to finding ourselves caught off guard in all aspects of our life. So some people will try and reduce as much as possible their contact with others or try and stay away from stressful situations. The body is just doing its job to not remember. This, of course, becomes difficult as we get older. The brain is just another organ that eventually loses its vitality and therefore its ability to protect. Hence why so many people enter therapy in midlife. They can make it through the first part of life fairly okay or justifying things to themselves. But when enough evidence emerges, it can be hard to ignore that some exploration is needed. This is directly linked to parenting because children will push all the buttons through no fault of their own, which is why comments such as, you're a difficult child, are so utterly damaging. It is an evacuation on the parents' part of their pain and one of the building blocks of intergenerational trauma. These experiences, though, can be repaired. Marie and I get into some of the weeds in this regard today, but engendering curiosity about ourselves only opens up the door to more space for children to be seen, loved, and experienced for who they are and not what we want them to be. I hope you enjoy my conversation. It's a great pleasure, Maria, to have you on my podcast. And this really started, you reached out to me from England. Uh, you're in England, I'm in Sweden. And I had the pleasure of being on your radio show the other week. And I'll include a link to that for others to 
be able to hear that if they'd like. But something caught my attention from our discussion. And it seemed that you and I touched on, because we only had an hour together, but we touched on a subject that's very close to my heart, which involves the notion of how we tend to split with other objects, meaning other people, particularly our children. We talked a bit about Klein in that interview. And and I thought that you and I could explore that more in depth together, maybe have a conversation today that might be valuable for not just parents, but but people that are looking to understand how anxiety in relationships can tend to put us in a position that Melanie Klein called the the paranoid position, but we'll we'll get to that in a little bit. I just think it's something that that it's great to explore together. So thank you for coming on today. I'm absolutely delighted to have actually uh, instinctively reached out to you (laughs) and you um, came back and said yes, that we did the radio program, which turned out to be much better than I anticipated because the reason I say that, I knew the subject was going to be brilliant and I knew you were going to be brilliant, but the other guest couldn't tap in, couldn't log oh, in. that's right. And uh, so I had to interview you and that puts you on the spot, really. But you were absolutely amazing and what a joy. And you've got this wonderfully uplifting mode to your voice and it makes everybody feel everything's possible, Mitchell. And oh, I well, hope thank you. I- I'm in sync with that, with you and for you, because it's such a deep and such an important subject. I was secretly pleased that you and I had some focused time together, to be honest. So even though I was very much looking forward to having a collaboration, there was a a shadow part of me that was like, oh, goody, we get some more oxygen together. So yeah, it was amazing, to... actually. It's, I love <laughs> synchronicity. I love uh, because of that. And I do think people are becoming more aware that that type of thing just happens in life. And I think the joy of life is also picking up on that and just moving on it. And that's what you managed to do. And we just sort of, I think the interview was absolutely amazing. So thank you. Thanks. So what, I'm curious, we have some shared history. Both of our families come from Eastern Europe. My family was in Polish Vilnius. That's where my grandparents were born, at least. And I wonder if you could talk a bit about that history and also if it does tie in to you finding an interest in psychoanalysis, psychotherapy. I imagine it does, but I'd love to know a bit more about you and and how you kind of conceive of that history and also your interest in psychology. You know, Mitchell, I think what's happening in the, uh, just to sort of take this, introduce it in this way, I think our world is moving slightly in a different dimension if we talk about energies. And somehow not only did we pick up synchronistically on, you know, oh, Mitchell looks great. He looks as if he's in the world of relationships. Let me ask him about doing something about relationships. And as we spoke, we both found out we'd had a similar history, which is amazing. And I think that depth, it's almost as if it's like the entanglement part of Mm. quantum physics, that somehow there's this link that people have. Mm. And it doesn't matter how far away you are in the world, we made a connection that had to be done. And I know that we'll be doing lots more of these sorts of discussions. My parents were both political refugees. My mother was east of... I'll be brief because I know I can give... 
far too much depth sometimes. Mm. But my mother was East Poland, my father was West Poland, and the Russians came in from the East and my Nazis came in from the West. And my father ran from the West to the East and they were both taken to Siberia. My mm. father was in a gulag, my mother was in a labor camp. Uh, eventually in 41, her husband was murdered, her first husband was murdered in the Katyn massacre. And in 41, they were both joined the Polish Free Army, who eventually joined the eighth British Eighth Army in North Africa, came up, fought at Monte Cassino and came over to the UK. Now, my mother's family were totally destroyed during the war. That was it. And she never had a family member that she could speak to after the war. My father, on the other hand, his two brothers were murdered, one in Auschwitz and the other one was murdered in was shot in a forest outside Poznan. And people always say, are are you Jewish? And I said, no, because what people don't understand, and there were so many Jews murdered, I'm not going to be light about the horror of what went on. And I'm not going to be descriptive, but I'm not going to use light words either. It was a murder. It was absolutely horrendous what happened out there. And the Jews were picked on and they were taken. And there were also others that obviously we know now that were infirmed, you know, sort of that had psychological problems. Anybody that wasn't perfect. And also intelligentsia. My parents and their family were intelligentsia and they were taken. And my uncle was murdered again as well in Auschwitz in one of the gas chambers. So when my parents were over here, I was brought up six of us in one room. My father suffered from survivor's guilt. So as he worked, he worked not only to raise us and when we lived four kids and my parents lived in one room, he was sending money back to Poland to look after the widows of his brothers. Oh, wow. And we didn't know this, actually. We didn't know this till I was older. But the effect it had on my family and also the deep mourning and melancholia that Freud talks about and Elizabeth Kubler-Ross talks about, you know, the wheel of life and how we approach death. Both my parents were in a form of, if not mourning, there was definitely melancholy there. So what lifted them out of it was, of course, humour. And as I was an observer, I was fourth out of five children. When we moved, when I was one and a half, my sister was born. My mother then had two miscarriages. And also I was put into, the. I'm only going to tell you this because it's relevant to understanding early childhood trauma. I was put into an isolation hospital because I had dysentery and I was put into an isolation hospital for three months. And I had then attachment issues. So by the time I was 16, by the time I was 13, I was very conscious of mental health. Mm. I used to listen to my mother talking about her stories. She was a wonderful woman. My father was an amazing man, but he really suffered with the anger of trauma, anger of what had gone on. My mother was much more a believer. She was a devout Catholic. And I think children gave her an uplift, gave her a reason to live. And she had much more of a a blessed, gosh, I'm alive. This is amazing. My children are amazing. I have the opportunity to live. 
And yet my father was destroyed in many ways. He was training to be a barrister. He didn't do that in the UK over here. He ended up working in a couple of factories because he worked all the time to make money. And for me, as I was growing up, I became this observer and a listener to my mother's stories. And I was always interested in stories. So by the time I was 13, I did say to my mother, look, you know, there's something wrong with that. You know, what is it? What mm. is it? Why is he so angry all the time? Mm. But it's more than just angry at this or that. There's something deeper. And my mother found that difficult to talk about. But after that, I started reading. I read Bowlby, found that. And that was my first book that made sense to be separation and loss. And that's all about early attachment. And if children don't have a secure attachment, it comes out as teenagers. They can often start stealing. They can often start becoming disruptive. And on the extreme, it can be very extreme at that point because it starts in the early years, which is where we come back to shortly. But very soon after that, I was asked to help in an asylum. There are very few asylums globally. This wasn't a proper asylum. And I did a lot of my early, early, I was 17, understanding of mental health and the degrees of mental health. And there I saw people that could not live in society, that were emotionally and psychologically malformed, that just couldn't adjust, couldn't live in, in the world. You worked there in what capacity, Maria? Well, um, what, I don't even think, they're not even on the DSM spectrum. You know, they're, they're like, I don't know if you've seen L'Enfant Sauvage, a child brought up by an animal, by wolves, and uh, she was brought in. So they're very, the children. Sure, young but were, you worked there in what capacity? Oh, capacity. How did I, I volunteered to help. I volunteered to help make the beds. I was in the female ward, feed Got some it. of the women who were, couldn't feed themselves, who were very, very either disturbed or, what's the word, when they are born whatever the word is, and that they are malformed. Mm. Let's use that. So they were, and some of them were truly, truly ill-formed, which now today with science and so on doesn't happen so much. But they, you know, either were, you know, had dwarfism, but to the extreme where they were truly ugly and couldn't hold a spoon. This woman had her mouth was, you know, her tongue was very large in her mouth, couldn't speak properly. And these women, there were about 30 of them in a ward and there were about two nurses to help them every day. And that's why a lot of the women in the ward would help each other, but they still need extra help. And for me, as a volunteer, not only dressing them if they needed dressing, but also talking to them, taking them out, making the beds, as I say, or feeding them. I was then, because I was there for a period of time, I was allowed to go on the more extreme wards. Whereas if people were allowed out of the wards and out into society, they would have killed somebody because their nature was much more on the side of being an animal as opposed to being sure, a human. Sure, civilized. Uh, Without being, you know, derogatory to these people, but they course, were really well looked after. Well, that brings up for me a thought that I think has crystallized even more when I moved to Sweden, but something when I look back to growing up and the legacy of the Holocaust in my family, to a large extent, it was in the shadows and it wasn't in the shadows. It was mediated, I think, through community. So 
my parents started their own synagogue, actually. And there was this sense of kind of staying together. What was unspoken, as you're pointing out, was the horror and the weight. And I like what you said earlier about kind of coming to your own and asking your mother, you know, what is wrong with dad? And what I wanted to say is that I think, you know, in 2021, we tend to focus a lot, uh, you know, Bowlby's work, I think really came to into its own and people really took it up a bit later, I think, at least internationally in terms of talking about attachment. But what I really wanted to say was that these horrors, we are only human beings. And so to expect that our parents, grandparents can somehow magically withstand and overcome this kind of pain, for me, it's an idealization, right? It's an inflation to imagine that somehow a human being can, you know, do all this work. In some ways, I think there is there is a kind of weight that each of us needs to to investigate in our life. And yes, of course, we wish, I wish my grandfather could have been more articulate about what he went through. But I, I quickly realized that, that there's something about accepting a certain disappointment of what people can and can't do that I feel is important. Yes, I just think that, uh, I don't know if you know this, in Israel, and I really would like to go there. I, I actually was drawn to Israel. I had to go, which is an amazing, wonderful country and full of depth. And it's a very beautiful country. They do have a clinic for the second generation mm-hmm. Holocaust survivors because it does stay within your not only your physical DNA, but your psychological DNA. You know, and people don't talk about this. The epigenetic mode of what you carry on behalf of your parents, it would be incredibly naive not to notice this, not to be aware of it. And I think that's what we're talking about here, Mitchell. And that's what you would have carried, whether it's your grandfather or your father, because it does, it is passed on because you cannot go through that horror. And it comes back to, I don't know if you've ever read it, the uh, Joseph Conrad book. The heart of darkness. It is the heart of darkness that people mm. walked into there. Mm-hmm. It was how do you reconcile human being, human life that is such a miracle? I always think life is a miracle. And although life is incredibly difficult for people at times, and some much more than others, and I think we're all still trying to make sense of that. But when people have seen that horror, walked into the eyes of hell and looked into the eyes of the devil. And there were terrible things that went on during that war. And people knew it. When they were in a concentration camp, they knew what they were heading towards. And they knew that other people had gone there before them. So how do you reconcile your soul at that moment? How do you say, what have I done to deserve this? All those questions that they must have been thinking about. And then the children, how the children they leave behind, or the, the if they managed to come out of that, or the families that they left behind. As I talked about my father's survivor's guilt. Now, this is my interpretation. He would never have said that. Because when this is the other thing you've got to remember, you know this, that people must understand. When you've gone through a trauma, you don't sit and talk about it. You get through it. You actually do everything to get through the trauma. Sure. You have to move forward. Your life has to move forward or else you're left there and you're opening up those wounds over and over again. 
So your father would have experienced quite a lot. And you experience it just by being in the vicinity of that person. And you try, try to pick up the bits and pieces and you've got the puzzle to put forward into, put together into a picture. But that's a great segue, I think, to something that I feel that perhaps isn't understood in a more popular sense around the differences, and you said this, right, that it is, it is easier and it is harder for others. And where that comes really into focus for me, and this in many ways is moving to a country like Sweden that has not had a major conflict in over two centuries. Mm-hmm. And I actually meet with a lot of people here, friends, expats who come from various parts of the world, places that experienced, you know, genocide, persecution, and and a bunch of us kind of feel this almost this eerie kind of consistency, emotional consistency here. And to bring this to what we're talking about, because you talked about this idea, you know, of the human being, everything in them trying to get away from this kind of pain. And there were actually studies that came out of Israel when they looked at intergenerational trauma, and perhaps it's related to the center that you described, where basically what it came down to was that if people can tell stories, if people can articulate through generations what they went through, that actually, that normalizes in many ways the experience. Whereas when it's kept in the shadows, it gets acted out without any blame, of course. That's not what's, you know, where, where I'm going. So what I've realized is that when a child is born, for instance, and you are no longer in that state of panic, uh, i.e. one is not no longer in the middle of a war or a civil war, what I think happens is the child's raw emotion and vulnerability can become huge triggers if the human being, the parent in this case, is trying so desperately internally to not feel hmm. fundamentally this disintegration that, that they've worked so hard to get away from. And the child is, is fundamentally disintegrated in the beginning. And I wonder if that's how you see it, if that relates a bit to your own trajectory or your interest in, in Melanie Klein. Mitchell, I just think it's the psychotherapists, let's just put this into perspective, are trying to make sense of what, who we are, what we feel as people. They are always looking retrospectively, while as a parent, you're living that moment. So read theories, and I'm sure you've read loads, as I have. And, you know, when I did my doctorate, it was both in Freudian and Jungian, because I said I've got to use both because they're both profoundly important. And yet, as a parent, you try to understand your child and your own feelings that that child evokes within you. Now, that child could evoke a feeling because that child looks like a brother you may have lost. And it might totally just look like that brother or the sister or the mother. You know, and suddenly this child is representing themselves Mm -hmm. in a way where guilt, pain, anxiety all comes to the fore again. And again, it's not just the child, it's how are the parents getting on. What happens to the parents when a child is born? Suddenly the father gets the pressure of, I have to deliver for this child because the mother is vulnerable at this moment still. You know, lots and lots. Let's not let's talk about the traditional way, which I still like, 
the traditional way of having babies, <laughs> mother, father, child. Nothing wrong with the other one, but we're focusing on this. Because there's always somebody that takes the vulnerability of the child. And it's always very difficult. So if the mother has had a child, she becomes then vulnerable and asks and wants the father to take over slightly, to protect her. And that's his role. But the father then has to draw something out of himself to protect the child. And what is that? Can I find that within myself? And if your father, if as a father, your father couldn't do that, where do you find that from? You've got to either find it archetypally from within you, or you've got to find it from somebody else that you've seen, a role model. It could be a brother. It could be a friend. Oh, well, Joe does that. Let me try this for size. And at that moment, we're all trying things on for size, because even if our parents did do it, it may not work with this particular child, because we all think a child comes in and we know what they're going to be like and that every mm. child's the same. They're not. Mm. And each child comes in with what I call their personal genius, their daemon. Now, the daemon sure. is a Greek term, as you know, for, you know, sort of carrying that unique part of yourself. But it also includes the good and the bad, potentially. And it's our job to draw out the good, make a child help understand what is the good and what is the bad. And I think this is where Klein comes in to play, because I think at the moment, we're moving into a society that only wants to see the good. And by not observing the bad, and this is why, why they're saying, oh, let's not have barbar black sheep, or let's not talk about, you know, the ugly witch, or people like that. Well, that actually negates a whole part of our, our humanness. Sure. And that's very dangerous for society, right. because we're going to put it somewhere, and as you say, whack it out somewhere. So um, I, I think as a parent, it's an incredibly weighty and difficult position to be in. I like that last comment that you made. And it's something that I wrestle with. And I, I don't know when I'm talking about it, I have this gut feeling like it's not very popular <laughs> to, <laughs> to intentionally bring up mortality, intentionally bring up these little deaths that we have as parents inside when, as you pointed out, our child is not the vision of what we expect them to be. And I went to a, I'm trying to think what conference it was at. Oh, I think it was in Vienna at the last Jungian Congress. There was a paper on replacement children, which I didn't think I would be that interested in. And then I realized what personal residences it, it had. And and you can imagine that if if a child is a replacement or maybe somebody's been through a number of miscarriages or somebody's lost a child. And then there's this incredible hope placed on a child on a very practical level. What I'm hearing you touch on when you talk about the daemon and this unique spirit that's in a child is then the parent needs to maintain a certain capacity within them acknowledge their own adult disappointment. So my own disappointment and death of my own fantasy for this child. And in that moment, not only just maintain space for, but then actively nurture and encourage something that may cause a parent incredible distress if unconsciously they didn't even realize this may be the epigenetic component, right? Where you don't even realize until the moment that something that is going on in the child is bringing up incredible 
loss in one's own, you know, psyche. And, and that's, I guess, the sort of the present moment, right? That's very, I think Jung, one of his great contributions is this, you know, the teleological, meaning that, you know, the heading towards something, that the neuroses, right, the moment itself, the moment when the parent gets anxious, and this is this is tied to what you said, where where anxiety becomes this bad word, or negativity becomes this, you know, we don't want to be negative, or we don't want to read these, you know, the Grimm's fairy tales are somehow too violent. And so we try and whitewash everything. But if we don't acknowledge and normalize the great despair that we feel <laughs> as parents, when there's loss, yeah. then we're going to feel strange, or we're going to get get pills because, oh, now I have an anxiety disorder. It's like, well, what if actually you're dying inside? Hmm. And that's, that's important, you know, that, that needed to happen to make room for the burgeoning spirit of the child that is, as I think you rightly pointed out, coming up against all this unprocessed memory that the child is bringing to the surface. And I think uh, the danger in our world at the moment, because this is such an important subject, you, you and I both know that in psychotherapy, it doesn't matter what age your client is, they always go back to their childhood. So it says how profound is our childhood. And in those moments, we cannot be perfect parents and we're not meant to be. This is, I think, the rules of life that people are very, very much mistaken over. We are here for a gifted period of time, and this is where understanding our mortality. We're here from a gifted period of time. Now, we all hope, and there are people that are living to 120, 160 now, and everybody's on that, you know, let's stay youthful and forever the eternity trail. However, most people don't. And we are here for that period of time. And if you do not access your own spirituality and understanding that you're here for something, then what the hell are we doing here for me? If you don't access some sort of spiritual connecting connection to the world, what is your mission here? Your underlying mission that keeps you going. And sure. then when you observe your child, they will always at some point rub you up the wrong way and you will rub them up the wrong way as you will with a partner because we're all so different. And that is our greatest gift. If it's not whether we're rubbed up the wrong way, yes. it's how do we deal with that? Yes. And who is that person? It gives you an opportunity to separate yourself from that person because if we're just talking about couples, couples who are in love merge. They become one. And that's the whole joy. It's interesting. You know, an orgasm was called le petit mort. It was the mm -hmm. death, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. The small death mm -hmm. that you took part. But I think it's the small death of your uniqueness, your individuality, because you become one at that moment. You know, huma your humanity goes and you become this field of energy. And that's how I like to see that side of life. But with a child, a child does something wrong. And that's good because they are now creating their own individuality. It's can we withstand that? And that's the point you're also talking about. Can we as parents withstand a child who says no to us? If we have been a child that were, if we, as we were growing up, were not allowed to to have our own formation of our own character and had to say yes all the time. What does it feel like now when a child says no? Do we say, ah, oh, that's what it's like. That's what I should have been like. I should have been given that opportunity. Or do we, because when hormones kick in, we don't mm. remember everything. 
do we go back and say, no, you're not allowed to say no because I wasn't allowed to say no. You're not allowed to have an individuality because I wasn't allowed to have it, and so on. And this is the self-reflective nature that we have to try to tap into. The child does something wrong, and that is good. They are creating their own individuality. Can we withstand that? What a great reflection by Maria. Can we withstand all of the complicated emotions that get evoked in us when our children push back? This is exactly what I feel is so vital and crucial when it comes to giving mind to the child. When Maria continues, she elaborates on the need to be spiritually and creatively connected in our lives. As I like to think about it, to have roots. So when the child pushes, we don't just fall over. I wanted to pause to thank you for being here. I am excited to announce that from October 10th to 15th, 2021, you can join me in Sweden for the inaugural Dignity of Suffering Summit, led by myself and Cirque du Soleil's Deborah Brown. Space is limited to 20 people, as I'll be hosting it at the beautiful Central Baths of Stockholm, the perfect place to process our experience over the past year and a half having gone through the pandemic, and to get back into our bodies. There will be opportunities to engage virtually as well if you're not able to make it. You can register your interest at mitchellsmolkin.com to get more information and to be kept up to date. I'd like to thank one of my listeners, Bob Williams, who recently supported the podcast financially. If you also feel inclined to be a patron, you can visit my website and scroll down to the bottom where there is a link. I am forever grateful for your support. Please continue to join me here weekly. You can rate and review the podcast at Apple, and please subscribe wherever you listen. Your attention to this means a great deal to me. Now, back to my conversation with Maria. What's so difficult in our society, you know, I think you and your wife are very enlightened. I think that's the true sense of the word because you talk about these things and you recognize it. I think over-analyzing can be too much, but I think being aware is equally as vital. Sometimes we're on edge all the time as parents to be perfect. No, don't be perfect. <laughs> we have to be the good enough parent. Good enough, because the child needs to grow. The child needs to break up against us. Have your rules. You've got to have rules. You've got to say, no, that's wrong. Don't put your hand in the fire, even if you want to. The will of the child cannot be dominant in a family because what can become a child that could be golden, where it could have tremendous gifts, can suddenly become golden because they're grandiose with no gifts at all. Sure. You know, because the parent has been grateful that this child exists or they're fighting against the husband and defending the child, and suddenly it becomes all mixed up. The relationship is just bound in all sorts of other complex conflicts that are going on. And it, this is such an important time, and that's why when we were talking about Klein and eventually we were talking about splitting, that in the early part you've got the paranoid schizoid position where the child has a good breast and bad breasts, recognizes the mother as both good and bad. 
oh my goodness, what's going on here? The, the, the person, the oceanic feeling of this woman, this person who is feeding me, because they don't know it's a person as such, because everything all belongs to the child at this time. That's where their whole narcissistic framework comes from. But this person responds to me and feeds me. So I'm comfortable because it's all about that moment of being fed. It's all about that, you know, sort of physicality. Am I fed? Am, am I watered, basically? Am I given TLC, tender loving care, which is so vital for our neurological development? And that person is responsive to us. I cry, does this person come to me? Have I got a right to be here when this child is born? And when the child cries, that's what they're asking also. So when the person, parent responds to that, then suddenly the mother might say, no, because, you know, sort of, I can't feed you because I've just fed you, or that's not what you want, or I can't get to you as quickly as possible. You know, you may be crying, but you're in a room next door, or I've left you out in the garden and I can't get to you. And the child starts getting angry. That's the bad breast. That's the symbolic representation of the change within the child or the acknowledgement within the child that, oh, mummy, you're great. No, you're not. And this also goes towards the father. But how does the mother respond to that? If the mother has not had attention herself, she will respond to the child saying, how dare you be so angry with me? I'm doing my best for you. Can't you see that? And equally, re-present to the child anger, frustration, sure. anxiety. There's, there's so many complex feelings and psychological pathways that go into the child it's incredibly difficult and especially today we are and society is doing this expecting parents to be perfect and what I'm saying is a good enough parent and when I was my, when my children were younger I didn't quite understand it which I do in a much better way now is you have to things have to go wrong and it's the key is how do you repair it Sure. I think that I'm pretty sure it was Eric from in his essay, uh, Psychoanalysis and Religion, where he makes a comment that has always stuck with me, where he comes through and he says, you know, psychotherapy is really about engendering a sense of curiosity at the end of the day. And there are so many thoughts I had while you were talking, and, and I'll try and just string them together because, especially from a contemporary perspective, there are so many layers, and you and I share a number of interests, and so we can jump around to an extent. But a few of the things that really crossed my mind are, number one, when you talk about Jung and you talk about the spirit, one of the great contributions there, I think, was a kind of rootedness in what he called the capital S self. So he had this idea that the process of maturation was turning towards this capital S self that is within us. And in many ways, this, this breaks down the persona that we have uh, you know, created to adapt to the world and roots us. If we just think about a simple image like a tree, you know, it, it, it gives us roots into the earth so that we have this, my first uh, psychoanalyst talked about, you know, that we have this kind of own kind of inner sanctuary. And so when the child gets angry with us, 
we aren't as easily thrown off because we have taken the time to root ourselves in our own creative spirit and we can recognize the the regressive childish aggress- aggression and we're not we're you know we don't immediately go to shame or we don't we don't think they're mad at us but we you know we are rooted in our own life and our own experience you know so that's i think the jungian contribution and as you pointed out you know melanie klein i think did a great job overlaying over that you know the fact that if we are not rooted and we we take that as a personal affront hmm. we will we will then become paranoid schizoid we will withdraw into our own kind of binary associations and as you pointed out respond with aggression which then creates this kind of view of self in the child that their aggression is bad and we all know how that turns out if we have too strong a, a negative association to our own aggression then it's very hard for us to love and to go to work and to stand up for ourselves and then i think lastly if we take a very contemporary perspective the neurophysiological perspective and i will go out on a limb here and i will say yes there are in a contemporary way if we have not been able to metabolize our pain, if we have not been able to understand the wrongs and the hurt that have come to us and be able to tolerate that, we are acting much more primitively in relationship to others, to children, to friends, to coworkers. If we cannot discern our own emotions from theirs, this is what Stephen Porges, the neurologist, talks a lot about the phylogeny of the brain in the sense that, and you said this when you talked about being in the asylum, people are more animal. You're more animal. If you have not had a chance for someone to mirror back to you and give language to your anxiety, and this is you know, basic Freud, right? Freud's uh, whole notion of the centaur and the, the head of the, you know, the human being and the body of the animal. I, I think there is a, a very important distinction to be made. And frankly, for me, it's a very simple vote for psychotherapy or any process that helps you put language to your anxiety, which is why it is so dangerous to pathologize anxiety. If we, if we pathologize it as something wrong, it will always remain in the shadows, as you pointed out. It's a very superficial and dangerous trajectory to negate the negative in our society, because then, then we have no idea what's happening to us. We think something's wrong, and then that I think is what intergenerational trauma can be, which is, you know, this regressive, aggressive response to the burgeoning child, which then just sends them the message. I always say this, you know, it's, I think I said it in our interview together. It's, you know, you know, Tarzan is trying to swing from the tree and and the tree just swings along with him. You know, there's no, (laughs) there's no conception of what's happening. And that's something that, for the parents listening out there, and, I, and you, you said that my wife and I may be uh, enlightened, or I, I don't know. I know that at times I'm aware of what is a- aggressive and what I don't need to respond to. And there's times where I have to repair it. Oh. And I have to go back to my son and say, you know what? I was tired last night. I was distracted. I was busy. I didn't see you. And so your point to parents is, look, there is no wild goose chase to perfection. That is the huge danger of talking about attachment. And the last thing I'll say is that Sia, the singer, was being uh, interviewed by Gabor, Gabor Mate the other week. Mm-hmm. And she looked at him and she said, are you safely attached? You must be safely attached. You know, looking at Gabor as in mm-hmm. there's some kind of magic 
safely attached person. Yeah. And the truth is, we have no idea what's around the corner. I have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow and perhaps reveal something uh-huh. very dark within me. Uh-huh. And so to, to tell people that there is some final point that you reach in psychotherapy or otherwise where you are all of a sudden safely attached is reckless, actually. It's yeah. every day, it's going back to from, it's, it's just having a curious mind. What is happening to me? If we can just maintain that level of awareness and and humility, I think that at least just keeps us in check to the best extent that is humanly possible. I know because Mitchell, I think what you've hit on is if we are not curious as adults, is as people, what the hell are we doing here? You you become you then sleepwalk, don't you? And I think much like you, my experience here in the UK is most of the people in the UK had no understanding of what it's like to be taken over to have the war really on their doorstep, except if you talk to soldiers. And I think what the gift of my parents, not a gift for them, but a gift for me, was that it did create this curiosity. I was in therapy well before anybody else sort of talked about it at the age of 25. And I was actually led to that through a couple of meetings I had. And I love this therapeutic language. But I have to try to accommodate that in my life alongside the normal day-to-day existence because I don't want to be entrenched just in the therapeutic language and I don't want to be entrenched just in the superficiality of getting on with the day-to-day existence where of people, and I don't mean this unkindly to people who might be like this or thinking this, that have no idea of what it's like to have a deep-rooted trauma that they carry the complex trauma, but coming back to the child, and this is us as well, so let's put the pieces together. You have a child. You have to respond in the way you do, and what you've said is so profoundly important. You know, I I couldn't hear what my child was saying yesterday, and Mm. I went back and acknowledged that because that's all we can do. A lot of prisoners of war that came over to the UK were housed and eventually they, some of them were put into old people's homes. And there was a group of old people from the war, Polish people. And a friend of mine did an amazing film once called The Polish Odyssey, all about how the Poles were taken in the trains to Siberia and their journey. And for the many, many years, and this was only about 10 years ago, these old people were very disheartened, very upset, very anxious all the time, very depressed. And this particular film was shown to them. And at that moment, their lives changed Mm. because the people that were looking after them, the English carers that were caring, but didn't understand, for the first time understood the plight of the people they were caring for, what had actually happened to them, how horrible the horror of that moment, those experiences. That validation of their life changed the old people's lives and the relationship. And what that's what we're talking about. If you can't know what your child's going through, can you hear them and can you validate it? That must hurt a great deal. Or, you know, I know you're my child, I love you, but I also like you. I like being around you. You're such good fun. <laughs> you know, those elements that our children, as you say, Mitchell, there's no magic wand. Kids have to grow up with a problem. There will be a problem somewhere because they need to grow. 
and psychologically they need to grow. And that may be their mission in life because that's not that's not my decision. I believe in God and I think that's God's decision for them. Yes. And they, we do get things wrong and maybe we're meant to get it wrong, but it's how much and in what way do, get, do we get it wrong? And, and moreover, if the experience of giving birth to the mind of the child, right? You mentioned the film being this kind of cathartic and, but not just cathartic, it was a, a turning point, but it, it is representative, right? That's the point. These mediums represent affect. They represent pre-verbal, non-verbal experience. Mm. And so parenting, and this is, this is an important point, Parenting is not going into a relationship having a set of values and things you want to teach your child. If what we're saying is that the capacity to withstand depression, anxiety, to be depressed, to go through it, it is, it is a living process. It is an active, recursive process whereby it is the act of the parent coming back. It's the act of the parent coming back I'm going to tell a story that, that will illustrate this. And I may have, as I do this podcast more and more, I may tell these stories over and over again, and I apologize. But about three, four years ago, when my son was little, we went winter skiing, downhill skiing, alpine skiing in Canada. And, and the first day we were unprepared for how cold it was. It was literally, it was minus 35 Celsius. My son was little. It was painful. And so we went to the shop in the afternoon. We bought hand warmers and better gloves. And then... <laughs> The next morning, we come out around eight in the morning. And what does my son do? Because he was six and just a six-year-old. He, the first thing he does before we even get in the car is he jumps in this big mound of snow before, <laughs> before we had anything on, before we had his real gloves on. So we just left you and he just runs into it. And, and I went into what Melanie Klein would call the paranoid position or what we would look at in neuroscience is I went into a fight or flight state. Uh -huh. I panicked. I imagined him being frostbitten and cold later. And I run up to him. I remember I look down, I grab his shoulders and then lift him out of the snow. And he looks at me. He looks at me. I'm crying right now. He says, Dad, you're hurting me. You're scaring me. Mm -mm. And, and I, I froze. I was like, oh, like he's right. Like I didn't, the animal in me, I was more animal in that moment. I was like picking up the bear cub, you know, out of, out of the snow. And, and I put him in his car seat. And I kind of did it almost in a trance because it felt so awful, you know, for your son to look at you and say, you know, that, that you're scaring them. We skied, had a lovely day. And oh. then that night I made a point of going to his room to apologize. And I, I opened the door and he's lying on his bed. He was six or seven at the most. And there's a smile on his face and he looks at me. And before I said anything, he looks at me and he says, I knew you would come. <laughs> he said, I knew, he says, I knew you would come to apologize. He had a huge smile. He knew, he knew, and R.D. Lang talks about this. And this is the, one of the last questions I want to ask you, Dale, as a segue. R.D. Lang says, psychotherapy is not about the past. Mm. It's not about the past. It's not about somebody surviving the past. It's about surviving the future. And yeah. so, <laughs> and so, so the, the active process of parenting, you don't have to feel ashamed if you get it wrong, but, but you should feel a bit ashamed if you don't go back and talk about it because that actually is what the brain loves. The brain needs to know that somebody is going to be there for you 
when you are hurt in the future. So that if something is going wrong, the brain says, this is tolerable because I am not alone. And so don't freak out if you disappoint your kids or you, but you should be, you should be freaking out a little bit if you find that you cannot go back into those emotions because that will set up a fear of the future because someone says, I can't survive this because I will be alone. That's the anxiety. Not I was alone. Yeah. I will be alone. That is where all the disasters of early life happen, that the secure base that Bowlby talks about doesn't occur because the parent isn't with the child. It's avoiding the child, neglecting, running away from because their early years were so traumatic for them or or they were taught like that. But I think exactly that, the repair, we must repair. And on, you know, I mean, the Catholic Church is going through a bad time at the moment, quite rightly. But there are certain tenets of the Catholic faith that, and most faiths that I like, which is reflect, repair, act of contrition, be truly sorry, and how are you going to put it right? And that's the bits that I like, because exactly that. It's like any piece of theatre. You want to have that redemption at the end. And Mm. redemption gives us that ability. But also something crucial is you're not alone. And I think to know that the parent is going to be there, that the child can sort of beat you up sometimes. They pick, you pick them up and yes, they're angry yes. and they hit you and they pinch you and they've got to know, no, that's not right, but you're still there. That's the key. And Absolutely. that's what you want to see. That's such a wonderful, wonderful story. I knew you were going to come in, Doug. That's so sweet. Oh, my God. <laughs> my heart just, it just melted because that. I'm not surprised. <laughs> <laughs> It's so, it's like, you know, it's like the gift of magic, isn't it? I'm still here for you, regardless of how you behave. But there are certain rules in life we must adhere to as well. And I think that's the key for the thing that if I were to have, you know, my life again, if you like, you know, what would I do differently is to have sat down and talked about what are the rules of our life that we must get our kids to adhere to. And that's why I think religion is so useful. It gives you rules of life. It gives you the steps by which we say, you know, thou shalt not do this. Thou shalt not kill somebody. Thou shalt not, you know, sort of be too aggressive. Thou shalt not be, you know, sort of too vengeful or too envious. And I think they're very helpful because it makes you reflect on your own behavior. I, I agree to an extent, but the early morality which I think parents get stuck in sort of saying, you have to be a certain way. Mm-hmm. And, and I just want to segue, because you only have a few minutes left, that w- what I'm also saying is that it's an, you know, morality is not something you teach. Morality is something you show. Yeah. And this is a concept that, as you and I discussed earlier, the, the lines between theory and being psychoanalysts versus a popular discourse. This idea of the introjection of, you know, Jung called it the imago of the parent, you know, that it's a process. It's not some fixed image or idea. And there's another one of your great compatriots, analyst, Jean Knox, Uh who wrote this great book on infant development. And she talks about how it's the, it's the mind of the therapist holding things in, in this active, almost process through osmosis of how we handle things that then can soften you know, if a patient comes in too rigidly holding some pain in their life, it's the process of of watching this be held in a different way that then the mind starts to become softer around it. Mm. And I just want to ask you, I mean, 
it's funny. Uh, I, I have friends who listen to this podcast and I, and I reference our conversations sometimes. They're from Britain. And, you know, there's, there's a whole side of England that is, well, uh, unaware of the huge tradition that Britain has when it comes to therapy and psychoanalysis that, that one of my friends made a comment that, you know, this in, in England, it was new for him to kind of listen to my podcast. And he's taught me so much about the world of sport. And he's been an incredible inspiration to me. And, and I know he'll laugh a bit when, when he hears this. And, he's, and he said to me, you know, if it wasn't for listening for this podcast, he wouldn't have been introduced to a lot of these ideas. And I think he made a comment to me that, that in many ways in England, this is not so much on the radar. And, hmm. and I said, well, it's interesting that you say that because my impression, and I could go down the list, you know, whether it's from Klein to Winnicott to Artie Lang to Michael Fordham to Gene Knox to Marion Wilkinson. So many amazing psychotherapists, psychoanalysts, I know. How do you understand that just as a final question? Because I think you started touching on it a bit. It yeah, seems that there's a bit of a split in England around this. In society in the UK, there is that split. So for your sports friend, I totally agree that he wouldn't touch on this because people don't talk about it. In Europe, they've got much more of a philosophical nature that's accepted. You know, in France, they used to have cafes, used to sit and talk about philosophy. Where am I from? You know, Nietzsche and Foucault and all the rest and Dostoevsky. But over here, it's like, no, that is sport. That is this. That's the mind. That's the physical. We need to start bringing it together. And that's what you're doing here because we need to open up this dialogue so people can actually sit and talk and ask questions. And I do that with my Speak Your Mind site. You know, let's have a conversation with everybody. They can ask the questions in the open and say, what about this? What about that? Why am I feeling like this? And answers are given over and above what they're feeling. And they get a lot of strength from that. Mm. I, ah, somebody's been there before. I can see a trajectory. My life, I'm not on my own. I think that's the key, actually, more than just splitting. We've talked about here, paranoid schizoid position, the good and the bad within us, but also that I'm not alone. I think that's what childhood also teaches us. Do you think that split in Britain is a response to its own trauma, this recovery of of a kind of greatness or, you know, because there is a kind of recommittal if we talk about the persona on a national level. Mm, I like that. that. The psychoanthropology that, of the country, yeah. Yeah, that there's a, 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 you know, trying to recommit to a kind of identity and anything that, anything that challenges that. And I'm not so interested in the royal family on a peripheral level. I find it interesting. I'm a, I'm a second child, so... I I empathize with Prince Harry being the more affect-laden, emotional one, kind of, I don't see it as a problem. I just see it as a natural evolution of the persona breaking down, and mm, I'm not, sur I'm not surprised. There. I think it's tragic he's doing it publicly, mm. because he's, who is supporting him? That's the problem. He's got, you know, they're both, this is um, the folie à deux they're into here, public they're both into a psychological state that is shattering between both of them and nobody's supporting them. Hmm. I know they've walked into this, they, their family can't, but nobody else is. And I think that's going to be tragic for them. But do As I brothers think, you're talking about. No, no, no. You, the brother can't do it. No, him and his wife yes. are in the folly hmm. But I think the more the point is 
who in our society, I think we've got this massive opening now for mental health and people are talking. I don't think it's a greatness, a fall from greatness that the Brits are trying to come back to. I just think it's isolation. I think they've been isolated. They've never had to look at their behavior in this way. And I think for the first time, this is being opened and it's a necessary part of our lives. I think opening it too much, too quickly without support is equally as dangerous. So I think we've got to be mindful and people have to know where to turn when they open up these subjects. But even on a discuss, you know, the fact that we can discuss, the fact we can open up a topic and make sense of it with people, we have to be recognised to know what we're doing to the greatest point that can be known at this mm. time mm. because we're all learning things. But I think the whole thing about opening up, talking, what it was. I've never had that feeling of the British being so great. I've just felt that there's a competency, which I like, an mm -hmm. honour, sure. a, a structural honour, you know, that, that type of thing. But I think that generally the world is awakening to their mental health and to how are we going to become one as a globe, you know, the animus mundi, as Jung called it. Who are, what is the spirit of the world? Where are we going? We are at the forefront of that, Mitchell. If we can keep this dialogue going, which I absolutely love, and I hope your <laughs> friend, the athlete, enjoys listening to this. But I do think this dialogue needs to open up, and I love the fact that you're not in the UK, that we are opening this up across borders, because we can now talk about what is going to be the future of this new human being that is encountering so many different types of people. For sure. It's a great pleasure to have you here. You know, it. we don't have time to go more into it, but it dawns on me for the brothers as well, for Prince Harry and his brother, because I have an older brother too, and I can only imagine how the public element of this must, you know, also make it difficult for a kind of intimacy of, you know, because oh. they went through a, a tremendous amount together. And And I think that, to be honest with you, my read on Carl Jung is he was very humbled by the ebbs and flows of human history. He had an appreciation that things wax and wane. We go from oh. periods of, of wildness to, you know, to being civilized. And for me, the joy, to be honest with you, are these intimate personal connections. And if others connect in the moment and find it useful, great, that ultimately we can just add, you know, our own little bit. And I look forward to continue to speak with you. Thank you for coming on. It means a lot to me. And it's been a gift. That's all I can say. Thank you, Rachel. I loved connecting with Maria. She brings an energy and a passion that makes me feel alive. I especially was touched with her deep desire to promote conversations and to engender self-reflection in people. It's worth repeating that the more curious we remain about our own responses to others, the more flexible we can be when it comes to listening and responding, which are the cornerstones to raising emotionally intelligent children who feel safe to express themselves and to follow their dreams. I want to thank you for listening today. So many of you reach out to me and thank me for this. And it is I who thanks you. If you are new to the podcast, please do not forget to subscribe and to review wherever you listen. Until next time, I remain faithfully yours. <laughs>